So welcome to Story. This week we're going to be talking about the fall. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be there for pretty much the, the whole sermon today. Uh, we've provided some Bibles there on your seats. We're going to be on page 2 if you're going to use the Pew Bible there. We're going to read together Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. I did not put the words on the screen, so you're going to have to actually open that book up. Um, and if you don't want to do that, you can open your app or your, your iPad or whatever. But once you're there, we're going to go ahead and start. This will be our text for today. Read with me if you like, uh, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are glad to be together as your church today. We are indeed glad to open your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to see something in this passage that we've never seen before. God, we pray that it would go from our eyes to our minds and it would seep down to the innermost recesses of our being, that our hearts might be affected uh, by your word. God, give us an awe of who you are from what we hear of your word today. God, I pray that you would give uh, us the Holy Spirit today, that we might not be comforted, but, Lord, that you would um, give us knowledge that we need, move us that we would worship you more passionately, and, Lord God, give us the spirit that he might change us to be more like you. Lord, we thank you for those churches in our area who are meeting right now, who are opening the scriptures and talking and singing and worshiping Jesus, and we pray, God, that you would meet with them, God, that you change people under the hearing of your word and Lord, that you would bring people to faith. We pray that same thing for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. You know, there's something really wrong with the world. Have you noticed? It's in the newspapers that we read every morning. It's in the news that we watch at the end of every night from from the weather that's gone quite freaky. I mean, we just got a lot of weird stuff going on. With our weather, we see murder, death, illness, killing all over the place. We open up any kind of media and we find out there's a worldwide war of terrorism. It's breaking out all over the place. And there seems to be little justice in the world. I would say, I don't know if you would say that, but there's something wrong with the world uh, that we live in now. There are a lot of people that would tell you you can figure out what's wrong with the world just by looking at the news. Just people are bad. Um, just, you know, stuff is, is wrong. But that really is is telling what we already know. It's not giving us the source of why things are the way that they are. Really, we can't go anywhere and understand really why things are in the world that we live in the way that they are unless we go to the Bible. The Bible does this in a very unique way. You can't turn to any simple page in the Bible and it says, well, uh, you know, there's terrorism in the world because there's bad people. The Bible isn't like that, but it does unfold for us a perspective, a worldview through a story. And we are unfolding that story 
uh, over the, the course of several weeks. And that is the series that we are in. We're in the midst of tracing the plot line of the Bible. And that plot line simply is creation, fall, reconciliation and consummation. Last week, we looked at the beginning of this epic story that God reveals himself to be the author of all of creation. The world that he created was created by his spoken word and by his hands. He created all that exists in six literal days. And on the seventh day, he rested that the pinnacle of his creation was human beings. He made them in his image and in his in his likeness, gave them uh, dominion over the earth, basically made us his rulers, his vice regents on the earth. God created for his own glory. If anybody will tell you that God created because he was lonely, because he was just he needed other people around him, then they're lying to you. The Bible says that there's only one reason why God created anything, and that was because he did it for his own glory. So today we're going to answer some of these hard questions about what's wrong with our world, and we're going to do it by continuing in this idea of the unfolding story of the Bible, looking specifically today at this thing called the fall. Now, the fall is a term that theologians use to describe Um, original human sin. Notice I didn't say original sin because this, what we're going to describe today, isn't the original sin. The original sin happens actually with the deceiver himself, Satan, and it's not, it doesn't come from this passage of scripture. The word fall is deceiving because sometimes, you know, we use that word so flippantly. I'm, you know, I'm blindfolded. It's dark. I'm trying, I'm in the middle of the night trying to go to the bathroom. I hit something and I, I fall. I trip over something not mean to do so. That really isn't how the Bible uses the word fall. Rather, the, the word fall refers to the willful disobedience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They disobeyed a command they knew they should not uh, have disobeyed. They did something that they should not have done. And the result of what they did is what we see in all of creation. And so as we go to the text Um, Genesis chapter one says uh, Genesis uh, chapter three, verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You know, every story has an antagonist. Every good story should have one. It keeps our interest. It, It develops the plot as a story rises. Things get complicated. They get, ah, what's going to happen next? And only like three pages in the Bible, the very third chapter, we find out that there's an antagonist. And then it's kind of interesting how he shows up um, unexpectedly, kind of surprisingly, with no explanation whatsoever. We find out that the antagonist in the Bible story is the serpent or so he seems. Actually, we find out in other parts of the Bible that there's something behind this serpent and his name is Satan. Satan himself. We're told in other parts of the Bible that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, that he's intent to deceive and, if possible, make confused those that God has actually chosen to to worship him. We're told here in this text that uh, the serpent is crafty. He was more crafty than any other being that God had, had made, at least of the beast. Now, I mean, you ever met a crafty person? This isn't crafty like, you know, I got my, my yarn out, I got my, my knitting needles, and I'm like going to town just making, making a baby blanket or something. I mean, this is talking about sneaky. You know, I mean, some, some of you all know some sneaky people. Perhaps there's a few of you that are sneaky right here in this room. Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 11, Satan is so sneaky that if, he, if we're not careful of his tactics and schemes, will be outwitted by him. Notice that in this verse, it says that the serpent was made by God. Our perception of, of the serpent, of really Satan behind this serpent, is that he's, he's, he's co-equal with God. He's this anti-God that's opposed to God and has all the same force coming at us with the, with the magnitude and the glory and the power that creator God does. And that absolutely is not the case. The picture the Bible paints is that Satan himself is a dependent creature, just like you and I. You know, we aren't told how or when Satan fell. 
and possess this serpent. We aren't given that background here. But if you would go to Ezekiel chapter 28 and parts of Isaiah, Satan is portrayed as he's an angelic being, one of the uh, one of the spiritual beings that God made at the same time that he made earthly creatures and all that we know about on the earth. Revelation tells us that there was a war in heaven. Satan rose up in pride, thinking that he could become God. And there was a war in heaven as God sent Michael, one of the archangels, and the archangels and the team on God's side went against Satan and those uh, fallen angels that Satan got to come on, that Lucifer got to come on his side. And uh, Michael and those angels kicked butt and they kicked Satan out of heaven, out of the heavenly realm. And guess where he lands? Right here on earth. And interestingly, he possesses this serpent and he shows up in Genesis 3 right there with Adam and Eve. The first thing he does, he goes to the woman. He doesn't go to the man. He goes to the woman. I said this to the men's group yesterday. I said, men, um, this is how the enemy will, this is how he does. I said, if you're strong in your faith, he's going to attack your wife. And I said, if your wife is strong, he's going to attack your kids. He goes to the least common denominator in your family and he will work it so that he gets roundabout to affecting you. And that's what he does here. He goes to the woman and he asks her the very first question in all of human history, at least the very first question that's recorded. And it's a Bible trivia question. He says, he says to the woman, did God actually say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? All right. So, I mean, Bible trivia question. Did, did, I mean, did God say that? No, he didn't say that. This is a trick. Um, we don't know what mode of communication the serpent is using. We, I don't know if he's opening his mouth and he's saying the same language as that Eve would understood at, uh, understand at the time. We don't know if it's extrasensory perception. She's looking at him and she's like getting brainwaves as as to I don't I mean, my, I have a keen mind, guys, so forgive me. I don't know what's going on somehow. And the Bible doesn't tell us she I mean, she's talking to an animal. Check it out. I mean, Adam named them all. So it very it, they probably were friends. Um, notice what Satan is doing. He's doing two things. First, he's he's exaggerating. I, I, I can just hear him. Did God actually say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And she's, you know, for whatever reason, Eve is not surprised by this snake. I don't know if you've ever I'm I don't like snakes. I don't know if you've ever handled a snake um, in my in my former life as an as an army guy in ranger school. They you know, they made us conquer some of our fears and they pass all these snakes around. A couple of them were actually poisonous and they held held the mouth closed. That's the nastiest thing. That's one of like, yeah, that's one of the nastiest things I've ever done. Eve is not freaking out over this snake. I know if I put a snake in front of my mom or my wife, I mean, me, I'm running. I'm going to get my hoe. You know, I'm going to he's going down. She's not. She is not surprised at all. I mean, what the serpent, Satan behind the serpent? He's firstly exaggerating. You know, I can just see him. I can just hear him saying, um, I mean, God is trying to spoil your fun. I mean, suppose it's like late at night and, and we're like walking by and we just happen to be at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we need a snack. I mean, what are we going to do? Just bypass it. I mean, there's some good looking fruit here. And God says, no, come on. He, this guy is like spoiling our fun. Don't you hear him saying that? I think he's also expressing this the right amount of skepticism. He's trying to get under Eve's skin and get her to believe a specific message that he's conveying. And I think what he's trying to do is make her question that God is that God doesn't want her to have any fun, that God doesn't want her to, to have pleasure. Now, Genesis uh, verse, uh, chapter three, verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And so Eve, you know, she has some cunning. She actually answers him with a little bit of wisdom, insight, actually adds a little bit of grace onto it. Um, she corrects the serpent. She corrects some of his facts and says, well, yeah, God did say that we couldn't eat of that tree. Um, she's referring back to Genesis 2, 17. Let's read a couple of those verses. I'm going to start in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you surely uh, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden. But every uh, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what Eve does do is she adds to God's word and she says, oh, but you know, we can't touch that thing. We can look at it. We can lust after it, but we can't touch it. Can't touch it at all. We, should, we, we could read a lot into this, but I think the main thing happening is, again, the woman is based upon the serpent, Satan's suggestion. She's flirting with this idea that God doesn't want her to have any pleasure. He's trying to hold her down. God is not about his. Cre- he's, he's, he's trying to control us. Don't do this. Don't do that. Yeah, you can do that. But overall, there's no pleasure to be had without me saying, yes, you can have that pleasure to start with. She's bu- she's bit that piece of fruit already. Verse uh, verse four, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. You know, this is the first overt contradiction of of God in his word. And again, what's he saying here? This is this is powerful. Pay attention to this. He's denying that God has the power to judge. And this is huge for us. It was huge for them. It's huge for us because what he's suggesting is that rebellion has no adverse consequences. Do whatever you want. God may be saying that you can't do this or you'll die. But really, I mean, try it out. Nothing is going to happen to you. And if we aren't careful, we will succumb to those same kinds of of ideas about the God that we serve. I think the other thing that he's saying is God's a liar. He's saying that God is a liar. God is saying this, but absolutely is he not going to back it up? And at this point, Adam and Eve have a choice to make. Believe God, trust God, have faith in God or mistrust that the God that created you, that created everything around you, the God that's been walking with you as a friend in this perfect environment is a fraud. And then we get to. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here. The Satan is basically saying this. If you rebel, then there's a special treat for you. You'll have divine insight. The, the irony here, he says, you're going to be like God. Now, if we go to Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27, it says these words. Then the Lord God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of him, he created him. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God made man to be like him. Satan was deceiving them with his words. He was offering them something that that he was offering them. Something that God had already given them. And then verse six is probably one. uh, It's in that category of the worst, saddest verses in all of scripture. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Let's handle the tree first. Interesting thing, not just the tree, but the fruit itself. Um, I mean, what was this fruit? Pick, you know, um, movies. And stuff that we read would have us to believe that it's an apple. And of course, because we believe we just see that. I mean, it just it kind of makes sense. It's a tree. It's a piece of fruit hanging from a tree. There aren't a whole bunch of fruit that hang from trees kind of like that. Um, it, it looked good enough for her to, you know, to entice her. Uh, but it's, this isn't as if God hates apples. So let's free up the apple. It, it doesn't say it was an apple. So don't you say it was an apple. Just say it was a piece of fruit. I mean, it could have been a pear. I mean, I'm not I'm not hip on pears. I like I really do like apples, but it could have been a pear. I mean, I don't, who knows? Um, there is no biblical text that says it was an apple. So let's leave apples alone. Um, it's not necessary for us to think that this fruit was magical, that as Eve took it, 
bit it, chew it. It went into her digestive system that something magical happened that caused her brain to just switch and from from good to evil or any kind of weird thing like that. Um, The fruit was likely a test. Think about it. It was a test. It was just this object got put right in the middle of the garden. It said, see that there? Your jurisdiction is all around it, but don't do that. And don't do it because I'm God. Don't you do that as a parent? You, 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 we test our kid. We have the prerogative to test our kids. You have the whole jurisdiction of, of your room, all these toys here, but don't touch that outlet right there. Okay, don't bother this lamp because it's, it's the lamp that was passed down five generations, and if you touch it, you're likely to, I mean, something's likely to happen to it. Okay, and what does the kid do? I mean, it, it's, it just happens. It's in us to do it. It's in us to do it. I think what's more important here than the tree or the fruit is, is what happens with this command that God gives. The fruit was an opportunity more than anything to demonstrate trust in God. It was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to demonstrate, like we have the opportunity every day in our lives to demonstrate faith in God and belief in, in what he's, he's told us. Faith or unbelief, those are the lots that we have in life. What's more important here is not the tree itself, but the rebellion that results from their choice. And in a sense, God's image bears in this verse decide to stand against the God that created them. And I would tell you that is akin to saying, I I'm choosing right now to be my own God. That really is what they are doing. And I would tell you that's idolatry. Whenever we worship something that's not creator God, then we have made an idol. Okay, and they made an idol not necessarily of the tree or of the fruit. They made an idol of themselves. They put a crown on. They built a a throne at that time and they sat on it and said, I will be God. The other interesting thing here is not the woman, but it's Adam. All right. And so, men, let's just go ahead and hang our heads low. And just admit that, I mean, he messed up and because he messed up, we mess up. We mess up all the time. Apparently, Adam was with Eve through all of this, entirely complicit and no less guilty than she was. This, again, is conscious rebellion on Adam's part and really a failure to carry out the divinely ordained responsibility that God had given him back in Genesis 2 of guarding the garden, of keeping it, all of God's creation, ruling over it, and and really superintending over the family that God had given him, especially this woman. And yeah, I mean, Adam is like, he's like, well, um, I'm like tilling the ground. And I, yeah, I see what she's doing, but I mean, you, I mean, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. It's just, she's just doing her own thing. I mean, I can't control her. But look at the disastrous consequences of Adam's Adam's action, his inaction. We can't under uh, can't overstate what has happened here from this verse. We get the fall of mankind. We get the beginning of every kind of sin, suffering, pain, physical and spiritual death for the human race. And as we will look future in Romans eight, this particular sin creeps into every living creature on the earth to include all of creation, creation groans. So what we get in the rest of chapter three, verse seven through 24, really are consequences, consequences of the decision that Adam and Eve make in verse seven. And I'm just going to call off some some consequences. The first thing is uh, a massive inversion. Think of it this way. God created human beings to be the pinnacle of his creation. God told a man to love a woman that he pulled from his side and they together were to be his vice regents over all of his creation to include the animals that that crept on the ground. But what happens here is one of the animals in the category of those creatures that creep on the ground was possessed by the devil himself. And that creature seduced the woman who pulled her husband into this scheme who sinned against the very God of creation. And we call that rebellion. More than that, we call it treason. More than that, we call it sin. The second thing is is their eyes are opened 
And this is just a sad thing. Their, Their eyes are open. And this is what sin offers you. Sin always offers us more than it can produce. Um, Satan said, when you surely you're not going to die, when you eat of this fruit, as God has told you not to do, not only are your eyes are going to be open, but you're going to be wise and you're going to know all that God knows. And what happens? I mean, some of that does come true. But the but, but the most important thing that of, of all that Satan says, their eyes are open that they're naked and they really get none of the other benefit. I mean, they get none of the other benefit. Adam and Eve know they're naked and in an attempt to hide themselves in verse seven, it says uh, they sow fig leaves for a covering. And the, the really, really sad thing here is, is they've lost their innocence. And if I could just talk to the young, well, all y'all young, just the young people, especially you young people in the room. This is the lesson from verse seven. Once you lose your innocence, you can't get it back. We can lie, cheat and steal. You can correct life after that. If you lie, you can you can confess and sort of take back your words. If you cheat, you can confess and, and make a right wrong. If you steal, you can simply give back what you what you've stolen. However, I would tell you, you do have a, a scar on your character, but it's redeemable. But when you let's take let's take this one, one step further. First Corinthians six, Paul says, when you sin sexually, Two have become one and you can't take that back. You, you can't take that back. You can re, God can redeem anything and he can purify the act. But you will always forever have the memory in your head. You'll have the scar and the stain in your heart from two becoming one before you're ready for that. This, this losing your innocence. And then in the case of Adam and Eve, They've defied God. Okay, they have done what the God of creation, who they were intimate friends with in a perfect environment, said not to do. And I would tell you, when you do what God says not to do blatantly in his face, you defy him and you cannot take that innocence back. So, young people, all of you, all of us, don't take this lightly. When you know what to do and don't do it, you're defying God and you are giving away your innocence. And absolutely, God can redeem anything. But there's the memory and there's the scar, the stain that remains. And all that we have to do, I mean, we can go nowhere else but forward to the cross. We have to go to the cross. But it doesn't mean that 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 stain is not still with you. The next consequence is broken relationships, broken relationships. And this is a, you know, this is a sad one. So what, what's happening here? Verse seven, Adam and Eve, their eyes are open. They sow fig leaves to cover themselves and make loincloths. They hear God. They, I mean, they're in a perfect environment. God is like, this is God's grace being, being initiated. He's searching for his creation because he probably senses being omniscient. Everything that's going on, he's, I mean, he's looking for the man and for the woman. God calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? And then Adam says, Lord, I, I, heard, I heard your sound. I heard you coming. I knew, I, I knew something was wrong because my, I know I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I've sinned. I'm naked. I'm, I'm going to sew some fig leaves on and hide. And then God says in verse 11, I mean, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then well, I mean, the dynamic happens. We see it in verse 11 and 12. We see broken relationship and the broken relationship first starts with God. OK, they're hiding from the very God that made them and loves them. And then they start name. I mean, name it, blame it, name it, blame it. OK, that woman, the woman that you took from my side that I'm supposed to love and keep. She did this. I mean, I was like doing I was tending my own. I was doing what you told me to do. And she Right there standing beside me, took this fruit, listened to the serpent and she ate it. And then he looks at the woman, verse 13, and she says, it's not my fault. That, that, that serpent, that serpent made me do it. He's the one that did that. And I would tell you, every relationship, every tension, every conflict, the control that happens and the manipulation that happens inside of relationship is because of what happens here in verse 11 through 13 in Genesis chapter 3. 
blame it on Adam and Eve. And it happens in your relationships and in your marriages right now. What's happening here in these few words? Denying a responsibility. That's what Adam is doing. That's what Eve is doing. Blame shifting. That's what Adam is doing. That's what Eve is doing. And self-justification. And we do that all the time. It's it's our way of saying, okay, take my good behavior, take my merit and use that to excuse me for whatever I've done. And they're doing that to God based upon their own their own actions. Adam blames Eve. He's justifying himself because Eve did it. Eve justifies by saying, hey, it's, it's not my fault that the serpent made me do this. The next thing that happens as a consequence is, is they're cursed. Three curses here in Genesis chapter three. Um, the, in Genesis one, Genesis three, one, the serpent, the, the verse there says the serpent is the most crafty of all the animals that God had made. And in verse verse 14, it says he has become the most Cursed. Listen to these words. Because you've done this, God speaking to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you'll you'll go and um, dust you'll eat all the days of your life. And so God calls the serpent the most cursed. And really, this is a curse of contempt. He becomes the lowest, most hated, heinous creature really, that we think about on the earth. I mean, I actually do hate snakes, and it's somewhat, somehow it's in me not to like... There's only a few people, you know, veterinarians, and I don't even know what the, the that... What do you call those people? The people that like zoology. I mean, there's probably a few of y'all in here. Forgive me. You know, they, they take care of snakes and reptiles and stuff. I'm not one of those. Um, what, what I think symbolically is happening here, when God is speaking these words in verse 14, God is casting out Satan from the serpent. And what is happening, the, the, from whatever posture the serpent uh, maintained himself, he is like reduced to a slithering animal on the ground, and he sort of snakes his way on, on from, from life. And from that point on, he becomes the arch enemy of not just a woman, but human beings in general. The second curse is on the woman. Verse 16 to the woman, he said, I surely will multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. These are significant words. I've never you know, I've been I've been present when two of my three kids were, were born. I was I was deployed when when Zoe was born. I listened over the phone and, and, you know, I think these the words aren't here. I think that childbearing wasn't necessarily painless before um, the fall. I mean, think about it. That big head coming out of that small space or, you know, my wife had a cesarean. It's, it was just hard. OK, I think um, childbearing, it, there might have been a little bit of pain, but I think there was great. This Bible says this great pain. After that, and I think it comes from the curse that God put on the woman. But I think this curse is also that special tug that women have toward their kids when they mess up, when they're hurt. Um, A a mother is always sensitive to what's going on with their kids. And I think that's a part of it's part of this curse that there's always something going on between a mother and her kid. But more than that. What this verse also says is that there's something that's significant about this curse and a, a woman's desire for her husband and he shall rule over you. If we fast forward to chapter four, Adam and Eve have kids, Cain and Abel, you know, this, uh, they learn how to sacrifice. Abel brings of the flock, Cain brings of, of, of the harvest and God accepts Abel's sacrifice, doesn't accept Cain's, and there's some conflict there. And the scriptures use the same kind of verbiage. Uh, God talking to Cain, get control of your life. Satan is trying to rule over you. Okay, and what he's saying is there's going to be tension between the woman and the man such that she'll try to rule over him. There'll be control for uh, you know, there'll be a fight for who is in control in this relationship. And we see that played out in husband and wife relationships and men and women relationships every single day. The third curse is on Adam. But this is the way it way it sort of comes about. He rebukes Adam, but he curses the ground. He curses the ground such that it comes back 
on the man. These are some of the words that he says. Because, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to, uh, commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for, the, uh, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's going on here is this is why um, labor is hard. Okay, And so before this, God spoke to the land and the land sprouted up trees and vegetation and all kinds of things that allowed us to eat food and subsist. From here on out, Adam is going to till the land and even in his hard work, producing food for himself and and all those things that he does to take care of himself and provide for him and his family are going to be difficult. That's why we work hard, we work hard, we work hard even now, and we have to work hard and scrap for every dollar that we make. And we have things that happen in our world that makes our, it feels like our labor, our labor to take care of ourselves and provide is almost in vain. The next consequence are just simple effects. I mean, not simple effects, grand effects. And the first is man is banished from, from God's presence. We see that in, in verse um, verse verses 22 through through 24. God puts a cherubim to guard the garden. Adam, no longer are you going to guard the garden of Eden. I'm going to put a cherubim there and I'm going to give him his flaming sword and he's going to slay anybody that comes near. The second thing is um, we are we are corrupted in our nature. And how do we know that? We don't see it here in Genesis chapter three. But if you turn to Genesis chapter four, Cain kills Abel. As we progress in Scripture, the Tower of Babel, as we look at nation of Israel in the desert, all of, all the ways that God blesses them, and they still they still rebel against Him. We see this this thing in us that we are corrupt in our nature, and it and it's, it's not an external thing. It's not being tempted from the world around us. It comes from inside of us, from our hearts. You know, Psalm fifty one says this: that we are conceived in iniquity and born. In sin, Psalm 51, 5, you know, we come out of the womb as sinners, which which specifically means we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because by nature we are sinners. The last consequence, not the last consequence, but the the last one that I'll bring up is, is death. Okay, we're told in the scriptures that death happens. God is it's part of the curse. It's part of the curse that men and women would simply die because of this. Now, God didn't make Adam and Eve to be mortal, but this thing in the garden, they had the opportunity to eat from the tree of uh, uh, tree of life kept them alive forever. And they no longer have freedom to eat of that tree. Implications. All right. So I'm going to finish up with a few implications in regards to What's supposed to, you know, what we learn from uh, from the story of the fall. And the first is simply this. We don't live in a spiritually neutral universe. We do not live in a spiritually neutral universe. What does that mean? It means that Satan is a very serious adversary and we should take him very seriously. He's smarter than we are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We live in a spiritual battlefield, not a playground. Ephesians 6 says, says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood with principalities and powers in this present darkness. Okay, and so, you know, I'm not one that hypes up the devil, but at the same time, we can't be so foolish to know that the things that he did in the perfection of the Garden of Eden, he's not still doing in our earth today. Notice how he came to Eve. He came really innocuously as something that they recognized. They, Adam and Eve had been given jurisdiction over all of creation. Eve wasn't afraid of the serpent when he came up and just started talking to her. And in very much the same way, God will use, uh, Satan will use very innocuous ways, simple, simplistic ways of coming and 
getting us off track from the purposes of God and he'll sway us to his own purposes. And you've got to be aware that he's doing that all the time. The second implication is simply this. People do bad things because we want to be God and he is just to condemn us. I suggested this a few minutes ago, you know, like Adam and Eve. Most of the time, the real object of our worship isn't some creature out there. It's the creature in here. Okay, we live from our hearts and we know from Scripture, we know from our own lives that the evil, the bad that we do doesn't come from external stimuli. The devil didn't make me do it. My wife didn't make me do it. My children did not make me yell at them for getting the peanut butter over their clothes. It comes from inside of me. Isaiah 64 says, you know, our best days are as filthy rags since they come from hearts that are committed to our own glory rather than God's. And really, that's what our heart wants. Adam and Eve proved that they wanted to displace God. They weren't happy with the pleasure that God was providing. And so they decided in their act of rebellion that they would be God. And every person born of woman since then is born with this idea of I am going to be God. No one is going to tell me what to do. I'm going to decide that. And that comes from the hardness of our hearts. Thirdly, uh, fourthly, we can't save ourselves. Excuse me. Uh, uh, thirdly, there is no area of our lives unaffected by sin. We are enslaved to it. There's no area in our lives unaffected by sin. We're enslaved to it. The theological term here is total depravity of man. What this means is there's nothing in us that merits God's love, his favor or his smile on us. It doesn't mean that we aren't so bad that we can't do horizontal good things, that we can't be kind to people to our left and to our right. There's not anything in us that just makes us want to do heinous crimes. But it does simply mean that there's nothing in us that that's going to make God let us into his heaven, save us trusting in Jesus to save us. And that really brings us to the, the next implication. And that, and that simply is we cannot save ourselves. If we if there's nothing that I can do to save myself, if I'm evil from my heart and, and those actions present themselves all the time, I really do need something external to myself to save me. A self-help program is not going to help me. It's not going to help me the way I need that I need help. I need something more than just a radical makeover that makes me look better on the outside. Okay, I just can't put on a facade of of clothes, of fingernail polish and, you know, and shoes and all that stuff that makes me look good on the outside and still have a rotten, nasty inside at the core. Because that still comes up to God, as Isaiah would say, as uh, as a filthy rag, because it's coming from an impure heart that really is trying to make myself God. I can't save myself. I need something external to myself to save me. And the last implication is simply this. God will have justice and he'll have justice by judging sin. He'll have justice by judging sin on his world. Jesus says several places in scripture that the day of judgment has already been set in the mind of God and no one knows it but him. The vision of that day is revealed in Revelation 18 as a great sinful city like the likes of ancient Babylon. And it says that Jesus and his cohort are going to completely raise it to the ground, decimating it. And in Revelation 19, we see this picture of Jesus coming out of heaven. He's on a white horse. He he's got tattoos on his body. His hair is like like standing out there. His eyes are ablaze. He's got this sword coming out of his mouth with which he's going to smite the nations. And he's got an army, the army of God in tow with him. And he's going to bring he's going to bring the can, the can of you know what. And he's going to he's going to bring an end to all to all those and all those things that have not bowed the knee to him. And he's going to establish himself as king of kings and lord of lords. And so I would conclude with this this simple statement. There is a cure to the fall. There is a cure to all this sin that we've been talking about for the last few minutes here. There really is something wrong with our world. God didn't create the world that 
He made perfect to be ravaged by terrorism and illness and disease and murder and bad weather and people run amok. But he did curse the perfect creation that he made because of one simple three letter word. He he cursed his world because of sin. And the fall was clearly instigated by Satan, by his deception and and by him trying in pride, trying to be God himself. And we have to also admit that Adam and Eve rebelled because of their own free will to do what they wanted to do. But as the story continues, we have to recognize uh, that their desire, just like our desires, are simply idolatry. Uh, Romans 1 says that we creatures, we, we choose the creature over th- the creator and we worship that. Okay, We put that in the place of God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden and that's what we do in our own lives. And we, re- we see many falls, many events like the fall in Genesis 3 happening over and over and over again in Scripture. You cross over to Genesis 4, you have, you have Cain and Abel. And the, the, the atrocity of a brother killing a brother. Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel where men decided to build a tower and try and reach heaven. Spoke to all the same language and they tried to reach. They were trying to become God. And then you have the travesty of 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 Moses going up into the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And then the people of God making a calf out of earrings and gold that they were going to worship that something they created with their own hands. I mean, what kind of God is that? And then we have Moses, God's chosen man to lead the people out of slavery, getting into the, uh, the, uh, the, the wilderness and deciding to disobey God by smiting the, smacking the rock instead of speaking to it. And then all the opportunities that the nation of Israel had to simply follow God and be his people so he could be their God and they rebelled against him. We have over and over this this many falls in all of Scripture, and we see the pattern of the fall in the words of Scripture. And this is the pattern also, folks, of our own lives. We, um, when we understand the story of the fall, we understand why the message of Christianity is good news. God has accomplished a cure for the fall, and the cure is Jesus. The cure is Jesus. You know, in the midst of God cursing his good creation, he actually proclaims good news in Genesis 3.15. I'm going to read this verse, say a couple words, and then I'll be done. Genesis 3.15 says this. I'll put enmity between I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel, bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. What, what Moses is writing in these words, he's prophetically foretelling that God has a cure for the fall. And the cure is going to be the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is Jesus. And so God will incarnate himself as the second person of the Trinity. And he'll come and like Adam, he'll be a person born without sin. Just like Adam was, was born and did not have sin in him. But unlike Adam, we learn in in Matthew 4, that Jesus, Jesus was, was sent into the desert and he was tempted in all kinds of ways to exalt himself, just like Adam was given an opportunity to simply obey God. Adam did not obey God. Jesus, however, though tempted, obeyed God in every way. And then this Jesus lived a perfect life, obedient to all of the commandments of Scripture, unlike Adam was able to do. And Jesus goes to the cross on the cross. The devil, he would actually strike Jesus heel. Jesus was murdered by people like you and I, people that he made with his own hands. Creator was was murdered by the creation that he he so loved. But on that cross, Jesus heel would strikes would crush Satan's head. Because although Jesus would die, he would be buried and God would bring him back to life and he would he would ascend to heaven. And God says one day that Jesus is going to come back. So what's our response to the fall? I think I think two things. I think we have to acknowledge that the the story of the fall of Adam and Eve reveals our own sin and our own guilt. And I think secondly, 
we get the opportunity to, to revel in the fact that we have a God who, not here in Genesis 3, although he promises it, but in future days will, will give us much grace through the redemption that comes through his son. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your words of scripture. We're thankful for the great creation that you have made. Lord, we bow, we just lower our head in shame when we read of the the tragic words in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that Adam and Eve, knowing what to do, chose really because of the the deception they fell prey to, to do what, what God told them not to do. And as we picture that scene and as we say these words, Lord God, we can't help but know that we fall under that same plight every single day. We know what to do. We hear the word of God beckoning us to love him by obeying him. And, and, and we so often simply don't do it. We fall prey to the deception, the scheme of the enemy. God, help us. Forgive us. God, I pray that like Adam and Eve in the garden, once they sinned, that you would grace us by pursuing us. You know, sometimes love is tough. They, they covered themselves. They tried to cover their shame. They made excuses. We do that too. But Lord, in your grace, you sacrificed an animal in their place for their sin. You covered their nakedness. You administered tough love. You kicked them out of that perfect environment. But you promised that you would come and redeem their lives. You would redeem this great travesty upon creation. Lord, we, we read of of the grandness of that day. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that you have died in our place for our sin. Moreover, Lord God, we pray that you would come again, that we would see the the complete reversal of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden by that grand day that you'll break the clouds, that you'll come as a warrior, as our Lord, our God, and our King, that you'll put an end to sin on this earth and that we'll be with you forever. What a great day that'll be. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Amen.